Hi there, this is Christopher Jackson, and welcome to Everything About Hydrogen. Well, folks, it, it's up to me to start the banter, so um, here we are. You're not supposed to say that, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you could tell that Patrick is moving into his uh, old age with grace, where he's like, let's start the banter. <laughs> the banter. <laughs> so how are we doing? Who, who wants to go first? Alicia, how about you? <laughs> I am um, I'm doing good. Everything's progressing along nicely. It is getting warmer in London, I guess. It, anyway, it looks that way. It's actually colder than it looks. It's shock, isn't it? We've got nice weather suddenly turning up, So, um, which is in all in good time. I've set my team the challenge of we bought a hydrogen barbecue from a company called Heatley. And um, the team found out that um, even though it's certified in Australia, it's not in the UK. So their homework is to figure out how we can get this hydrogen barbecue we have in the UK now approved to run on uh, hydrogen. And of course, we've now commissioned our um, our first electrolyzer that's operating. So we are we are among the unicorn clutch of businesses that actually have a, a working green hydrogen electrolyzer installed. So uh, so that's quite fun. So um, that will be, uh, we're looking forward to doing some bits and pieces with that. Um, a couple, we're working with a couple of different partners. So that's keeping everyone busy. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, you've jinxed the British summer by trying to buy a barbecue this far out. We bought it last year, buddy. So don't worry, we didn't get a chance to use it then. But um, you know, so two, two summers are going to be ruined. This is terrible. Oh. Yeah, pr- probably, probably. But, um, you know, we've tried to be more uh, cheerful. It was a pretty, um, pretty bleak um, energy day in the UK. End of March, the government did, um, it was supposed to be called Green Day, which as someone said to me, just shows that the government's average age must be pretty high, that no one drew the link to the American indie band. But then um, Rishi Sunak doesn't like the word green because it doesn't win in votes. So they changed it to Energy Security Day. Um, and then they pronounced nothing to do with energy security. They just pronounced a lot of lobbying money going to big oil and gas companies and i think someone had a great pie chart where they said you know small little slithers there's like a slither for ev charging there's a slither for battery electric vehicles there's a slither for heat pumps there's a slither for green hydrogen and there's this massive you know 80 percent plus of the pie which is carbon capture oil and gas <laughs> so, so that was that was the excitement that we've had so frankly i think after that kind of uh, uh run we've had for the start of the year patrick i think if it rains all summer, that's not the worst news we're going to get all year <laughs> in the UK. <laughs> that's a that's a bleak enough picture to uh, to begin with. Maybe you can give us something more cheerful, Patrick. What about you? Tell us about how the hydrogen hubs are going to be more exciting. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, we are you know in the 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 last steps of uh, application time, and uh, on April seventh, that those applications go in, and then we see. But. Um, there's much, much more still still to come and much more going on about the technicalities of how some of these things will operate and run and, and how uh, different tax credits will come into being and be monitored and tracked. And um, yeah, we're, we're right, in the, right in the mix here. But nonetheless, it's, um, it's exciting times because uh, whether it all works out smoothly and everything else or whether we get our eight hubs or there's only six or four or whatever, I forget the statutory minimum, this has got a lot of people's ducks in a row now to go develop projects that were probably uh, further down the pipeline before it was announced. So, you know, it keeps going. But um, I think people are finally getting uh, a little bit more excited about it as we come into the, the tangible moment. Ira is really, just for competitive reasons, has really um, driven a lot of uh, new policy around the world. 
And Chris and I just missed each other in Berlin last week, but I was at the Canadian embassy. Canada uh, just announced their package, their IRA, just smaller, but Canada is smaller. But it also includes, you know, a lot of Canada does have a lot of minerals and things that are necessary for the supply chain. And they they obviously have energy. So uh, that's some good news. And I, I really do think that IRA has really kicked a lot of countries into a higher gear just for competitive reasons only, but it's still, it's, it's, it's a positive. It's unfortunate that we're not getting it in the UK, but um, other places have taken note. And I guess that leads into the introduction to our next guest, which is uh, Petra Schwager. She is at the UN Industrial Development Organization known as UNIDO. She's the chief of the Division for Climate and Technologies Partnerships and designed and leads the UNIDO Global Program for Hydrogen and Industry, which she launched last year in uh, two years ago, in July 2021. Uh, so she supports developing countries to accelerate green and renewable hydrogen production and application to drive net zero industrial development. She does uh, quite a lot, and especially in a, a UN entity, she is famous for getting things done in one-tenth of the time that, that anyone else could attempt it. She, she's uh, magical in that way. So we'll, I think maybe we'll just get her on. Petra, how are you? It's so good to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Alicia. Wonderful to talk to you. I think we have a lot of questions for all the exciting things that you've been working on. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a long list of questions. Hopefully you'll forgive us for them all. <laughs> Maybe I'll kick it off, right? It's it's a pleasure to have you on. I suppose, could you tell us a little bit about UNIDO, um, your position as the Chief of Division for the Climate and Technology Partnerships and what you focus on and how you got there, how your career led you on this track? And how do we pronounce it? Because <laughs> this is the other thing, getting the names right. What should we be calling it? Is it Unido? Unido? How do you how do you refer to it? <laughs> well, it's actually it's Unido. It's United Nations Industrial Development Organization, and yeah, we have our headquarters in Vienna. And what we actually do is very much aligned with SDG nine, and SDG nine stands for Sustainable and Inclusive Industrial Development, and means we see industry as a means to fight poverty. And the other parts of SDG 9 are innovation and infrastructure, and this is what, what we're doing there. Yeah, and in my division, uh, we bring forward new innovative partnerships and, and technologies, and among others, it's the new program and partnership of hydrogen in industry, where we very much focus on bringing this forward in developing and transition countries and making sure that there is a fair hydrogen transition that doesn't leave anybody behind. Yeah, that's my that's my division, and that's that's uh, my work there. I I started my work at Unido in actually in Mexico in our Mexican office, and then I was moving on uh, from resource efficiency, circular economy, uh, green chemistry. So always then looking for new elements, and also one one of my previous projects was on chemical leasing, which is a new service based uh, business model. And so here I am starting where I started also the hydrogen. Pretty interesting. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about your new baby, the UNIDO Global Program and Partnership for Hydrogen and Industry? 
Yeah. What are you hoping to accomplish? I mean, personally, is uh, green hydrogen is something that I that I have for breakfast, lunch, and dinner during the last uh, two years, and it's it's really becoming one of my it's my passion. I believe it could be a game changer, and it could be a game changer for especially for the global south. But we have to get it right. Uh, what we hear in the last years, uh, it's the dialogue is changing a little bit. But everybody wants this new fuel of the future. There's a lot about talking about exporting it, but very little about uh, what can the countries uh, get out of it. What is the share that uh, countries in Africa get get from it? How can this fuel from Africa also be a fuel for Africa and fueling a new industrial development uh, that is so much needed for the continent, that's so much needed for the young people. We need employment. We need to generate new industry that leave more value added in the country than not only exporting it. So what we are voting for in our program is to look at this and to see how through hydrogen they can attract new industries and then instead of or in addition to exporting green hydrogen, export green goods. And maybe just picking up on that, because I mean, you know, I remember, um, you know, previously in what feels like a, a long time ago, and probably wasn't all that long ago, but when I was um, doing green hydrogen with the World Bank, we were we were trying to look at this topic at the time and, and what we could do. And I think one of the tensions at the time was that um, many developing countries were very keen on the idea of exporting hydrogen, and that was sort of the focus. But actually where we were trying to encourage people more was to say, well, yes, there there is an export opportunity, but actually the big opportunity is domestically, you know, because you, you are going to need energy and it needs to be sustainable energy. And actually, if you can build a ecosystem and those capabilities internally, that will help a lot. One of the questions that I sort of had for you and Unido now that you were working on day to day, and for me, it was a few years ago is, has that sense of how hydrogen could be a game changer for the global south changed? I mean, is there still this feeling that when you speak to countries and governments, they see this as an export only story, and that's really all they want to talk about? Or is there much more of a openness and willingness to say, actually, no, we, we do want to think about how we can use this within our own industry and within our own energy system? Yeah, great, great question. I think it changed. It changed. I recall two years ago, we were talking with countries like Chile, a lot was about export and not about also uh, using it at, at the domestic, for the domestic market. Countries like um, Morocco always had it clear. From the beginning, we want to use it also to develop our, our own industries. In countries like Egypt, it, it's it's changing. And it also always depends with whom you're talking. You know? um, there is, of course, and this is something we all have to recognize, uh, countries need uh, the money from the export to build up their hydrogen economy. Because mind you that if, if you take a credit in uh, Namibia or in Egypt, it costs you much more than if you would do the same in the European country or in, in the US. So these countries need the dollars, need the euros to build up also their industry. So you have to look at both, no um, export and local application, and then it will vary also from country to country. So Namibia maybe will go first for exporting mainly uh, green ammonia and building up I mean, you will need like 50,000 people just to build up the, uh, all the hydrogen plants that are there. So you're creating the first part of, of economy, the employment there. But then if Namibia manages to also explore collaboration in the SADC region, then I think it could have a greater chance also to build up their, uh, its own industry and value added. 
but just maybe on that one before I jump over, and the team famously know that I ask follow-up questions, so Patrick's probably smiling behind his screen and Alicia is smiling. Um, you know, the obvious thing here is that, you know, this is a temptation to jump to big straight away, but one of the tragedies of global energy in the global south is that energy is more expensive today anyway, and that the global south often pays much more for energy than we do in the developed world, and it's often far less stable and secure. And so I guess I just wanted to push a little bit more and say there are already financial use cases today in the global south where green hydrogen with solar, wind and batteries are cheaper than fossils. And there are already use cases where from an energy security perspective, it's actually very appealing because they don't have to deal with some of the supply constraints and some of the grid issues that places like South Africa are dealing with. So what is Unido doing to try and encourage people to go, yes, the export stuff is nice and obviously we want 50,000 jobs, but actually there are things you can do today that make financial sense for you today, that are good for the environment today, and that also, because they're not giga projects, are accessible to local supply chains and local businesses. Because, you know, no local supply chain is going to be able to do a 50,000-person green ammonia job in Namibia tomorrow. They're just not going to do it. But SMEs might be able to do a series of microgrids. They might be able to do local bus projects. They may even be able to do 10, 20, 50 megawatt, 100 megawatt projects, potentially, with some support. So what's Unido doing in that area? Yeah, I mean, first of all, you're absolutely right. Uh, developing jump, uh, countries should jump immediately to renewable hydrogen they should, uh, or renewable energy and, and not just pass by uh, unsust- uh, the use of unsustainable energy sources. What we do, we, we, we have a model, we, we are encouraging very much, for example, in the global south and in, in, in Africa, I see a big potential for green ammonia production for fertilizer production. So this is something that that you could trigger actually rather fast, also with medium scale enterprises. So you're producing green ammonia and then you use it for local for, for for the production of local fertilizers. And you could do this in cluster models in what we call green hydrogen industrial cluster models. The challenge here is really the supply of electrolysis. And we had recently discussion with with huge with with big electrolyzer um, suppliers that uh, no longer want to go for smaller supply, for smaller electrolyzers, but only go for the big projects. And here we really have to see with whom are we teaming up that we get the electrolyzer for the smaller projects that we also see uh, can we trigger some national um, development here. I'm thinking about starting accelerator programs for a national um developments in in uh, developments for the that could contribute to sustainable hydrogen uh, value chain in specific countries and not just depending on the import of uh, large electrolyzers so there are a number of ideas that we have there but i mean as you know first you have to build up the renewable energy before you can talk about and so it's it, it's it's a very complex undertaking that brings together a lot of partners so build up your renewables first and then see how you can group it and and apply it for the hydrogen in a way that also gives a value added to the to the population around it. I mean, look at look at the man. We talk about the oasis where you have also water supply for the locals um, and not just for uh, industry use. I hope that makes sense. It's a very complex undertaking, so you have to really team up with a lot of partners, and we do team up with World Bank, by the way. So maybe as a quick follow on and, you know, leading off some of some of what you've just uh, spoken about, uh, contemplating local production versus some of this re- regional kind of trade aspect. Do, do you have a, 
you need to have a view or a specific kind of a kind of a perspective on you know how that kind of rollout and development looks and and i suppose is there you know kind of exception countries or exception industries that are kind of moving forward well, as I just mentioned, I think the easiest is that you that you convert um, industries that are already using hydrogen. So, and in, in specific, the ammonia production in in Africa. So, to convert this to green ammonia would be maybe the least complicated one, if you, if you wish to say so. Then other countries we we are working in uh, on uh, green steel development. So here you would trigger first on green iron development or the raw iron development. So we see countries like Morocco moving forward there, but this is not going to come from one day to the other. I mean, building up the steel industry or building up raw iron uh, industry will will take some time. So this is why where we come in is we say, if you go for, for green hydrogen production, pair it with your industrial development policy. So you have to know which sectors do you want to develop and what kind of in, uh, energies and what kind of export-import policies do you need for this? What kind of skills do you need? So it has to be a package. And this is where we are, we are coming in. And concerning the percentage about versus export or local application, that will depend. That will vary among countries. Can you tell us a, a little bit about the hydrogen industrial clusters, the valleys, hydrogen valleys or hubs or, or ports, how they will accelerate green hydrogen uptake and create value for local people? I mean, you have the biggest efficiency with hydrogen if you use it where it is produced. So what we are we want to inspire and what we are going to test in a few countries now is you bring the renewable energy production as close as possible to the production of hydrogen and then you see that you use it immediately for for what you for for industries for green ammonia production or even then steel at the at the later at the later stage so through this you will have a, a bigger efficiency uh, on the use of hydrogen and also on employing uh, national nationals and um, yeah and having a value added for the region itself it doesn't exclude that you might also go into export, but the main the main part of the hydrogen would be used in these uh, clusters. And then you can build up, of course, PTX hubs also. I, I assume you know local industries would would use the hydrogen, but also if you have inexpensive green energy, both electrons and hydrogen, you could attract companies to to put production facilities in these places. It, it could act as a magnet. Um, for for FDI, is that is that one of the goals as well, or is it more of a it, more of a self reliance uh, um, concept? I mean, let's be let's be uh, frank. If you want to build up, let's say, green steel production in in those countries, you will need to attract companies from abroad to help you build this up. It's not something that to do this from one day to the other, but I was just visiting our biggest steel production in, in Austria. I'm, I'm from Austria. And if you just would imagine that you want to, you know, reallocate part of it, this is a major undertaking. So we, we, we see, in the, I don't know how far we will go in the next years, but for sure we will see an additional production in countries like Morocco, where, for example, steel industries from Europe would invest. And you see this already with, with the Swedish green steel production that goes that, that, that are going to Brazil, uh, where you also have the iron ore. So it makes a lot of sense to, to produce there and then export to back home. And we will need more steel and, and cement. And I mean, it's a growing market. 
I mean, one thing I was sort of wondering around this is that a few years ago, there was a, I think eccentric is the wrong word because everyone who was working in hydrogen a few years ago was probably eccentric, but there was certainly a pretty ambitious group of people who were developing a, a thing called the African Hydrogen Partnership. And they were doing a lot of work around how did they coordinate these different industrial clusters of activity across Africa and how did they try and build linkages with people? You know, and I think that they've sort of managed to make quite a bit of traction sort of since the, since the heyday five, six years ago. How important for Unido is it to see these kind of uh, organic grand plan strategies sort of being developed and led by the private sector and then bringing in actors like Unido and and MDBs behind them you know or or is that actually unhelpful in some ways is it actually are those because those are maybe private sector driven they're less maybe aligned to a company's development strategies how do you how do you think about organizations like that and the role that they play in in thinking about the green industrialization of the global south well, as, as you need, maybe we are the organization that works the most with private sector. So we are not, we are not afraid of working with the private sector. And we believe that you need to work with the private sector, of course. But our role is, is, is so we, we do engage there, but we look, we are very careful with whom we are engaging. We cannot engage with it. We try to avoid to engage in with individual companies. So rather with, if you say an organization or also associations are rather our partners. And our role in this is to see, okay, uh, what are additional enablers that we can bring in? We are not, we, are, we don't want to compete and we are not competing with the private sector. But what are the, what are the frameworks that you need in the country? What are, what are the policies? How can you make sure, like, for example, in South Africa, we are going to work with several ministries. How can you work, make sure that this is aligned or what I mentioned before? How can we support governments and also with the participation of the private sector to develop a hydrogen strategy that is aligned and I keep on repeating here myself with the industrial development of the country because only then you will be sustainable if you just say oh today I'm doing this and tomorrow I'm doing this without having a clear you know idea where you want to where you want to go that would be very difficult and this is challenging in countries and I've worked I worked in over 40 of those countries where you have constant um Government changes are very often government changes, but it doesn't make life easier. <laughs> no, it most certainly doesn't, and and that probably leads into my, my the final one that I had, and um, team go off, which is you know the role of MDBs in complementing what Unido does, right? Because I think, um, you know, as you say, the governments often change quite fast. And so actually having sort of partners who are there for the long term can be quite difficult in this context, right? And actually the one thing that Unido and people like the World Bank and African and Asian Development Banks are able to do is to take a long-term view and be there for not just five years or 10 years, but, you know, actually 20, 30, 40 years and really, really stick with these different groups. You know, certainly in my world by days, we weren't doing very much in hydrogen. <laughs> we talked a lot. We didn't do much. I think um, Asian Development Bank was probably the same, although they did actually put some money into one or two things, to be honest. And even the um, IADB, Inter-American Development Bank, too many acronyms, um, was just starting and they just started to do some stuff in Costa Rica, but it was pretty nascent. What role are these development banks now playing in supporting Unido and the rollout of green hydrogen in developing markets? And what could they be doing that they're not? Oh, that's an interesting question. At the last COP in, in Egypt, I actually was uh, moderating a panel with the European Development Bank, with EBRD, with the German KFW, and I was asking them, so what, what makes, uh, what makes them different? Uh, if you are now, and we had also, we had OCI, uh, OCI, uh, uh, 
hydrogen developer, a green ammonia developer of uh, of Egypt on board, with whom we had interacted quite a bit. So, what makes you difference? What what are you offering to the to industry? So, so we would come in. We 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 are not a financing in, uh, financing institution. So we would uh, maybe you know bring forward and facilitate the, the projects, bring the partners together, but then the, 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 the banks should come in and finance eventually. So the role is very important of, the, of these DFIs because uh, commercial banks are still too afraid to enter into this um, you know, highly risky market, what they told us when we, when we interviewed them. We had, at the moment, we are doing a study on this also, what's happening. But I believe... Um, the banks are still too risk covered. They're putting too many conditions uh, on hydrogen developers, and this is why it also takes too long. We all know that this is not something like, uh, it's not solar energy. It's not that you just have to develop renewable energy. You have to develop the whole, you know, the whole value chain. You have to develop the electrolysis. You have to see that you get also long-term purchase agreement when you're investing there. Prices are still high. So it's, it, it's a risky business, but I think DFIs are sometimes making it more risky than it is. So we are trying to work with them to de-risk and, and to come in with, with new ideas and maybe also building the trust that you can invest in this and that's not something that will fail tomorrow. I think that is what, what our uh, yeah, what our task is in all of this. But Patrick, you, know, you, you spoke to obviously the existing industries that, that, uh, that various kind of countries and regions have. How, how do you contemplate or how do you encourage the you know, potential off-taker profiles of you know, next step industry uh, to emerge here. You know, one of the questions that I often deal with within our work streams is around resiliency of supply and, and kind of consistency of kind of market positioning. How, how do you kind of talk to those kind of demand side uh, sectors for hydrogen um, within, within the global set? Could you could you develop on the de- demand sector a little bit more? What what? Well, for instance, the steel the steel positioning that you you spoke as mm-hmm. it being an example. Um, you know, we could we could speak to you know any potential hydrogen offtake sector that could emerge that isn't a pre existing industry within a country. Well, we do we do work with them already in some of the countries, and we talk to them on the on development of of their own industry. So. Um, will take a few years. I think that the main important thing is that you go step by step, you build up your renewables, you, you get the electrolyzers in place, you see that you also work, for example, in, in countries like Morocco, where you know that the car industry is going to uh, ask for green steel, so that will be that will be a bit easier there. Or you have already a perspective that somebody is going to purchase your product and also is willing to pay the higher price. Is this what you're referring to? Yeah, you have to kind of show the system, right? You're working with private sector in these next step industries past just the existing markets. So it's kind of positioning where you guys engage with other parts of the, the kind of offtake world and the hydrogen economy. I mean, I think that that's, that's our main focus to, to, to work with new, with new developments and not just with the, with the existing ones and building this up. People really struggle to understand the true breadth of what the World Bank and what the UN and a number of these multilateral agencies can do and actually are doing day to day, right? And the level of impact that they can kind of have. Um, and one thing that me and Alicia had talked about before this episode, and I kind of, um, I'm going to hope that I'm allowed to ask you and you're not going to, uh, and, and if you don't feel comfortable, just tell me otherwise. But 
we noted that uh, certainly in my time at the World Bank, one of the challenges that the UN always had is that they never had the resources to do a lot of things they wanted to do. And so they had to lean a lot on the development banks to to fund a lot of the work. And so, you know, as good as the UN is, it always requires support from the MDBs to catalyze a lot of the change that the UN is trying to drive towards. And the particularly live debate at the moment is obviously, you know, are the banks lending enough? And that's been a challenge that's been put to the MDBs is, are they being too conservative with their balance sheets? And are they doing too much to try and maintain AAA as opposed to going out. And this clearly has been a big tension point within the donor community as well, because a relatively small amount of donor contributions has a disproportionate impact on net funding from MDBs. You were touching on this point about risk aversion. And so I couldn't sort of leave without coming back to you and going, in your view, given the work you're doing with Unido, do you feel that we are missing a window here where if the MDBs could be bolder, that there is a lot more we could be doing to really catalyze some exciting developments. And and maybe the follow-on of that, what is the consequence of not acting now as opposed to waiting and doing this later? Well, I think much more could be done. And and and, and if we I mean, our role is, is as, I, as I mentioned before, it's not about funding. No, it's about really working with the partners and bringing them together. We, our, our, I think our main advantage, and also if I talk with potential um, purchaser in, in Europe or so, is to create an environment in the country that is at, that, that de-risks investment and that enables also, and if you go hand in hand with DFIs, that we really create the conditions that are needed that we, that maybe also they can trigger more investments and faster investments in these developments. And if this is not happening now, we are going to miss the train. We are going to miss the 2030 goals because it just takes time. And I think some of the people are uh, I'm talking to, they are already a bit, they thought, oh yeah, 2018, we start with the, with the super hype for green hydrogen. So, uh, yeah, and then, and then they saw that it's much more complicated than that. You need people that are doing this. You need the right, you need, uh, uh, how do you, how do I get the permits, uh, done fast that I can construct my plans? How do I get the buy-in from the different ministries? I mean, you don't have only one ministry. You're not dealing just with the Ministry of, of Electricity. You're dealing with many more ministries. You're dealing with, you have to look into water. You have to look into land use. You have to look into social issues, especially in South Africa. And this is also why their roadmap is called the Hydrogen Society Roadmap. So there's a lot of issues where we can come in and facilitate this. And as you also mentioned before, we are there not just for five minutes. We are there for longer and we don't have our own interest. And an important element, and this is what I was just uh, presenting here I'm at the moment at the G20 in India for the Energy Transition Working Group, presenting the work that we are doing on standards and working with ISO on a new standard for, for hydrogen that looks also into CO2 content. And in November, there will be the first me uh, methodology coming out. And here, then, our job is to... Um, see how, how can we enable developing countries to participate in this dialogue, but also how can we train uh, or how can we undertake trainings at national level that they know how to comply, that they can know how to check. So just to bring them into this um, standard discussion. This is something that UNIDA has been doing for quite some years. And, and quite necessary for the whole industry, really, um, not just the global south. We need to have agreements on how we measure and uh, track and name products. 
just a, just a last one. Um, do you have any uh, exciting plans for COP this year or any other milestones or announcements coming up? Anything to share? Yeah, I think for the COP, what we're discussing at the moment is to look more into the um, SDGs and, and hydrogen, so the impact on the different and, and SDGs. So maybe we will have a session on this. I think considering that the, um, that the COP is in the UAE, water consumption will be quite quite an issue so we're also looking into um, developing there some studies partnering partnering with some stakeholders a lot of discussion and a lot of opinions um, on water consumption but the truth is many do not know we don't know exactly because we don't have the big plans yet so do we plants do we really know how much water is going to be consumed how we are going to do this so we have to work with really pr practitioners and and get their opinion and not just to that is without um, talking to the industry there. So this is what we want to do more. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you, Petra, so much for coming on. I know you're about to rush off to another place. Um, <laughs> you're always in flight. Um, so uh, really, really was a pleasure to have you and, and get your viewpoints and really um, all of the activities and that you're working on um, are, are just going to be so beneficial for the global south and, and, and general decarbonization. So thank you for what you do. And also thank you for joining our show. Thank you so much. And then thanks for, for, for joining with us. And we will need everybody on board here for this uh, yeah, just hydrogen transition. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you very much. Absolutely. We've uh, just finished the episode with Petra from Unido. Um, thank you very much, Alicia, for um, inviting her onto the show. It was uh, it was really nice to actually get um, a little bit of a flashback to kind of my old days working, um, first time working in hygiene with Patrick, and um, you know suddenly brought back some memories, good and bad. And probably you two were would have been proverbially kicking me under the table with all the questions I was asking. <laughs> That's always the case, Chris. <laughs> well, That's always the case. Exactly, nothing new there. But um, you know, I, I wanted to get uh, you guys to share some of your perspectives on on the call and I guess whether you were surprised by anything that Petra sort of raised or if you feel that there were any areas that maybe weren't as explored as much as you you know we would have wanted to and that maybe are ones for us to come back to so why don't I start with you Alicia and then uh, over to Patrick. Sure well I, I mean I, I work with Petra a lot and because our projects are all sort of these ecosystems they track really well with what she's trying to build the sort of hydrogen valleys and these um, areas that can be eventually have uh, circular economies, but um, you know, you start with whatever is necessary in the area what, that can be electrified or can, you, know, you can use hydrogen and then build from there. So I wasn't really surprised by much of what she's saying because I, I do work with her a lot, but I have not seen development banks as active as I would have expected. I know that they're interested in, in the area, but I haven't seen them really get involved and sort of help a, a country to move forward with a hydrogen strategy, whereas UNIDO has been doing that. They've been engaging directly with governments and, and helping them with their hydrogen strategies. But I think that since funding is usually the biggest issue, and as she pointed out, one of the reasons that 
global south or, or developing countries, however you, you want to call it, one of the reasons that they need to start with exports often is because of their credit. So they need to be able to build up by selling something to a high credit off taker. That's the only way they can get financed. And then once they've got that rolling, then they can potentially also use uh, the product for themselves, whether it's the electrons or the hydrogen or, or actual product like steel. So it seems like this would be a a shortcut to um, starting with export might be if there was a little bit more um, development bank support for doing local projects um, as as well as export uh, and not sort of waiting until you've you've already done the export. That 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 would sort of be my viewpoint, but uh, I'm not sure what if Petra would agree with that or not. It would make things a bit faster, I think. Yeah, it's never, it's uh, to that point, right? It's never binary, right? You never go just one way or the other. There's always this kind of, how do you build the kind of credibility, the resiliency within systems, whether it be for, as you as you rightly flag, like an export kind of, um, kind of orientation around this, or whether it's that supplemental ramp, you know, from building out new facilities and how those pieces come together. And that question is in, the most advanced markets in the world, never mind, you know, emerging markets. And this opportunity in, in Global South more generally is frankly, from what I've seen of it, absolutely incredible um, in terms of both a potential to develop best in class projects, but also to have a very, very kind of significant impact on, you know, general kind of human well-being and equity and industrial kind of um, trade as well. And, and it's a complicated picture simply if we want to hit our our kind of uh, environmental targets in most generally like we need to do this as a collectively right and whether you are a developer whether you're sitting in an mdb whether you're um a financier this this is this is part of this pathway we we really don't have much of a choice in it and um i'm i'm very interested to, to kind of see as we get these kind of first in class projects built in various obviously various different regions what that does towards the kind of the floating prices in these regions for uh, hydrogen and derivative products what this does to those local markets what that trade that enables and what kind of the the macro if the regional macro kind of implications that start to emerge from that are but to your point to your very point you know if we put the bar super super high right at the beginning you know, to, to kind of ease people's uh, kind of uh, first, you know, first project concerns, you know, you you risk stunting it. And I think that that kind of perception of risk, you know, we don't even see that same level, I think, of barrier in, in some of the kind of the more developed markets, right? There's a greater tolerance for some of this technology and um, market risk. But, you know, maybe Chris, that to your point, you're, you're the one who builds the projects, right? So like you, you should very well see some of this kind of pain, in, but all, all together, your MDB background might tell you a little bit more about that too. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting, right? I mean, I think the, the Global South, the opportunity for green hydrogen in the Global South and for decarbonization is absolutely phenomenal. And I do feel very passionately that we are completely squandering it. And I think the MDBs, frankly, are, have done a really poor job. 
and and I think it's it's actually becoming a real crisis point. I would say on this because people are completely underestimating the fact that it just doesn't matter what the UK or France or even Germany actually does on decarbonisation. What matters really in the next ten years is what happens to people like Indonesia or Brazil or Nigeria or India or China and, and obviously the US. Like these are the markets that we have got to get right. And the global south is transitioning from predominantly traditional fuels to modern forms of energy. And if we don't provide them a green, sustainable energy ecosystem to develop into, they will develop using traditional fossil fuels. And once they lock in that infrastructure and those networks, we're done. There is no way we're going to hit 1.5 and maybe not even 2 degrees, right? And that is really worrying to me. And so, I, you know, from my perspective, you know, I do feel very strongly that there are some really easy wins here, right? Um, you know, and there, and as I said, there are some use cases for green hydrogen that just work extremely well in a lot of these countries. You know, whether it's um, decarbonization of transport in Chile, where people have already been looking at hydrogen buses and hydrogen cars, because actually it's quite difficult to build EV charging infrastructure in a lot of Chile. It's well, not Chile, um, Costa Rica, sorry, Costa Rica, um, because you know it's mountainous and the terrain's difficult, but it has lots of natural renewables and lots of water and it imports all its fuel. So it's a great story for a market like that. Or I remember in Indonesia several years ago that they were 800 telecom towers being powered by Cascadian methanol fuel cells. Actually, they could be using green hydrogen and a number of other resources to make green methanol locally and using that for critical infrastructure, which, which again is a great use case. Um, I even remember there was a company called Tiger Power several years ago that had these fantastic microgrid containerized systems, rooftop PV with battery and hydrogen would give you 600 hours of 100% renewable power. And I think the cost worked out at something like 240 to $300 um, per megawatt hour, which, you know, people in the developed world would say is expensive. But, you know, in off-grid locations and in some islands in the developing world, $300 to $700 a megawatt hour is pretty normal. And it would be 100% local, 100% renewable, 100%, you know, developed and value added locally. So all these opportunities are there, but they're not being captured. And, and I kind of was getting onto this theme with Petra. My worry is that everyone's going straight to the big projects and these big projects will never materialize fast enough. And the supply chain and the skills base is not there in these countries. It's one thing to retrain staff in UK North Sea or in Oman or in a place like Australia who have skills and knowledge around um, around natural gas and hydrogen and oil. It's another thing in a market like Namibia or in a market like Morocco that doesn't have extensive experience to suddenly have not just a hundred, not just a thousand, but tens of thousands of skilled, knowledgeable engineers in the space in a very short time period. So I do think there is a much bigger role for Unido and the MDBs to be getting involved in getting early projects, smaller scale, off the ground faster, building that local knowledge, building that local supply chain and de-risking it. Because yes, it's scary for an investor to come in on a multi-billion project, but they don't need to from day one. They could do a 20 million, a 50, a hundred, and MDBs should be, we pay them as the developed world to take risk and they're not. Yeah, we pay them to take the risk the market doesn't want to take. So, you know, they should be there when they when the banks are too scared uh, and they should be the one to go in first into a new industry, especially like this, where we have an opportunity to leapfrog uh, traditional fossil fuels into something that is green. And and as these countries grow, they can be growing in a green way. Uh, this is exactly what the development banks should be doing. Yeah, I mean, I know that that some of them are, and and some of them are very interested, but it it seems like they need a bit bigger of a push. And you know, one would hope that 
the situation with Ukraine and, and the instability of pricing that comes up every two years, you would think that, that this would be another driver for, you know, helping these these Global South countries to get on the right track, because it is such a big opportunity for them. And, and they right now are, they don't even want, you know, green fuels in shipping, for instance, because they think that that will penalize them. They, they don't see the argument for the economy that it can create for them. It's not just a product. It's not just like a banana republic that you can make because it is both infrastructure and an exportable product or many products. And it is, I mean, is the basis of an economy. It allows all of these um, growing countries to build more complex uh, economies, which is, is always the more successful ones. No one wants to be a banana republic. And actually, even more, even more radical this year. What I think is really exciting about where green hydrogen and batteries and solar and wind come in is the fact that you know what you can do potentially is you can completely bypass the old centralized model. You know, I think it's widely understood that part of the problem with energy transition today is that the way that utilities operate and the way that old-fashioned utility networks, transmission distribution networks operate is part of the barrier to decarbonization at the moment. They cannot move fast enough and they are inhibiting inhibiting the space and the pace of the transition we need to deliver on. They also create clear winners and they create monopolies. And so in states which have fragile and weak institutions and fragile governance, capturing key monopolies is a very effective way to actually extract resources from the state. And we've seen this in South Africa with ESCOM. Right. And so actually building distributed smaller scale infrastructure assets and being able to have them dedicated for customers, whether that's a mining customer, whether that's a food producer, whether that's a steel site, whether it's a fertilizer plant, whatever it might be, is revolutionary. And it completely undermines this kind of monopolistic structure that has hamstrung a lot of development in these places. So I think that's the other thing that's really exciting about this. I actually think, you know, if the UN and MDB mandate is not just development, it's also social development, it's also democratic and, you know, broader social liberal rights that are supposed to be associated with what they're funding, then decentralized energy in some ways is one of the most radical ways to unlock and democratize these markets and they're not investing in it. And I think it's unforgivable in some ways. And I don't really understand how they can be funding, you know, the World Bank is still funding natural gas projects. It's still funding some midstream and downstream oil projects. It's only just, they've only just been bullied to stop doing coal. I mean, it is, it's outrageous that that is considered low risk in the context of a climate crisis. And yet getting them to do something like green hydrogen with people like a Siemens or, you know, people like a ThyssenKrupp or whatever is considered to be high risk. I mean, it's what planet these people on is just unbelievable. It, it really is. I mean, if you look at every developing country, the IFIs have come in and they've invested in cement, concrete, you know, all of these high uh, greenhouse gas emitting industries. Beer is usually one of them, like just within their own portfolios in every uh, every one of these developing countries, there is an opportunity to decarbonize. And that, that could be a really easy way for them to start with, with their own portfolio. And obviously they don't usually own the majority of the company, but they usually have quite a big say and they can be, they provide different types of funding to do different things. But yes, I, I mean, it's sort of an opportunity for a daisy chain of uh, microgrids that are 
that have leapfrogged traditional uh, energy and and can use what's locally available and and what makes the most sense for each industry. I don't think we necessarily have to miss the chance. We're definitely talking about it right now, um, but I think it would be comforting if people would go faster. Yeah, and you know what well, the, the thing is, the development banks I've seen, and this is where I think there is a trick from Unido, and and you know there's something with Petra that would have been interesting to get into, but for another time is when they work well, it is incredible what they achieve. So I remember being at the World Bank where they were um, trying to help Egypt with one of its first big solar solar uh, sort of rollouts, and the problem was that the utility at the time basically wasn't credit worthy within Egypt and there was no policy framework for solar and it was amazing because the World Bank you know all three all different branches actually coordinated and the World Bank main group the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development IBRD recapitalized the utility in exchange for a new policy law that was set in place in Egypt saying that there would be a fixed price for solar and there was a regime and that they would buy it and they would commit to integrating it and they made land available for development the IFC provided private sector capital for developers to go out and do the development work on the solar and to make sure that people could fund it. And then the MIGA, the Multilateral Investment Guarantee Agency, provided a credit political risk insurance to lenders so that if there was a change in government and there was a change to the feed-in tariff that had been negotiated by the IBRD and the Egyptian state through the utility, then um, the MIGA would underwrite it. And those three things coming together got over a gigawatt of solar deployed into Egypt. It's a fantastic story of where actually working together in a joined-up way these organizations have an incredible capacity to influence change, you know, and it was two people in the World Bank who drove the Argentine um, renewable auctions around one and two. It was five people in the World Bank that drove the South African, you know, auctions as well that got their first solar and wind out. So when they work, they can be transformative and there is scope for hope. And I really hope that, you know, with projects like yours, Alicia, and frankly, some of the stuff that RMI has done around mines and with some of these mining companies, if just given the right nudge, and you know, people like Unido and the MDBs coming behind entrepreneurs in the private sector, you can feel and see how this should come together. And we could be talking about something really exciting, but it still just feels a bit too far away right now. So with that, it sounds like we need to get some folks on from the uh, the development bank space to uh, to give us a bit of a yeah. bit of context about what's going on and what challenges and opportunities from their perspective are. That's a nice little Easter egg there, Patrick. <laughs> mm. And on that bombshell. <laughs> exactly. I guess we'll say goodbye to our listeners. And um, we'll, we promise a follow-up to continue this conversation. Absolutely. Looking forward to it.